Russia-Ukraine tensions. Some kind of grand bargain with the West that gives him the, the security he thinks that Russia deserves, the respect that he thinks Russia deserves, and control over a sphere of influence. Australia-South Korea defence deal. Covid and supply chains are deeply linked ideas in South Korean thinking, just as they are in ours. It's, it's that you have to have a reliable partner for all the inputs that your economy and your military needs. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Russia's military build-up along the country's border with Ukraine has seen tensions rise between the two countries. And recently, we have seen the US, the EU and the UK warn Russia against invasion. Anastasia Kapetis speaks to Russia expert Professor Mark Gelioti about the likelihood of a conflict, Russia's approach to diplomacy, Putin's game plan and what the objective would be in the case of a Russian invasion. Mark Gelioti, thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. You're joining us today to talk, really to talk about the Russia-Ukraine situation. And looking at the commentary over the last couple of days, there's been a lot saying, can a major war in Europe really be on the verge of happening? There seems to be a pervading feeling of unreality that Putin doesn't really mean it, that it makes no sense for, you know, what many analysts believe is, you know, Putin as a, as a master of geopolitical chess. What do you think about this? I mean, what might make war worthwhile for Putin? Well, let me start with that particular metaphor of the geopolitical chess, which is actually one of the particular bees in my bonnet, because it implies always that there is this grand plan that Putin has worked out how to, to mate the enemy in the chess sense within seven moves or whatever. And that's not how he works. He's actually, I mean, again, if we're going to go for the, the cheap parallels, I mean, you know, he is a judoka, he is a judo fighter. And in that, you have a sense of how you make plan to play out the game. But essentially, you go into the ring, you circle your opponent, and you're looking for opportunities. And when you see opportunities, you strike. And that's very much Putin's approach. He tries to create situations of, shall we say, instability, in which he will have a variety of different options at his disposal. And he can then determine which one of these to take as and when the situation begins to to resolve itself. And so I think what we have to realize at the moment is that Obviously, Putin has some kind of game plan in mind. Um, He's built up what is an extraordinarily serious deployment of forces. It's not like previous, essentially rather theatrical ones, which were all about teeth and not about tail. They were all about making sure you have soldiers on the border that look scary, but without the kind of logistical backup that would be needed to actually launch at a full-scale attack and prosecute it. This time it's different. This time we actually do see all the the boring backup stuff, the bowsers full of fuel, the truckloads of ammunition and so forth to sustain high intensity combat operations. So he's clearly giving himself the option of real military invasion. But on the other hand, that doesn't necessarily mean that that he's determined to do that. This seems to be, um, at the moment, I would suggest, a very high stakes attempt to, in effect, intimidate both Kiev and the West into giving him what he's been looking for, really for his whole presidency, so 20-odd years. He's been looking for some kind of Yalta 2.0, some kind of grand bargain with the West that gives him the, the security he thinks that Russia deserves, the respect that he thinks Russia deserves, 
and control over a sphere of influence, which includes countries such as Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, and so forth. And it does feel as if this is almost a, a last throw of the dice of an aging president who perhaps feels that history is not on his side. And, and he's just trying to do this. But as I said, I mean, I think he, he cannot be unaware of the, the massive potential costs and risks of a full-scale invasion. And therefore, I think it's not his plan A or even his plan B, but it is there as his plan C or D. The financial markets at the moment, according to the Financial Times, are pricing the risk of war as very low. But in the last couple of days, we have Sergei Ryabkov, Deputy Foreign Minister, actually making a nuclear threat, saying that Russia will deploy tactical nukes if NATO doesn't give in to Russia's demands, basically, to make sure that, that Ukraine and Georgia never join NATO. For me, it was a strange statement, given that Russia, last I checked, Russia has about 20,000 tactical nuclear weapons in various states of readiness along its borders. Why escalate it to a nuclear level, at least at a rhetorical level? I mean, this is the classic art of what I think of as Russian heavy metal diplomacy, is in precisely in which they use their military forces as instruments of coercive diplomacy. On one level, this is an entirely meaningless statement because they already have these, these weapons deployed. And he's not talking about launching them, just simply maybe putting some in Kaliningrad, this little enclave, or exclave rather, beyond the Baltic states and so forth. But at the other time, he knows full well that as soon as you mention the N-word, people sit up and take notice that nuclear weapons carry with it such an extraordinary, almost taboo, that you know, this is a way of signalling we are serious do not regard this simply as, as just another bit of bit of ordinary, shall I say, sabre-rattling. So, I mean, I think we should consider this as part of an overall campaign to really ramp up the tension. And it's quite interesting that the Russians keep talking about the risks of unintentional escalation. What they're trying to do is saying, wow, this is a really dangerous situation. We have the least to lose. So it's in your interests to give us concessions. And again, I mean, the problem is about you know, all these attempts to assess the likelihood of conflict, which you know, I should stress up front, I think it's much more likely that this will be resolved in some way short of conflict. I don't think we're heading for a, a full-scale war. But there always has to be that little asterisk, because the trouble is with common sense assessments, is what may be common sense to you or me may not seem common sense to the people, you know, the, the rather old and paranoid men in the Kremlin. You know, they have a very different set of assessments of how the world is. You know, there, there are people, I mean, particularly the secretary of the Russian Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, who is, in effect, Putin's national security advisor. There isn't that formal role within the Russian system, but that's essentially the, the perspective that, that, that he takes. I mean, this is a man who, you know, I genuinely believe that he thinks there is a long-term Western plan to firstly isolate Russia and then actually to dismember it. That, you know, he genuinely thinks that, for example, the United States would like to get its hands on Siberian raw materials and such like. Now, if that is your fundamental assessment of the world, then you will inevitably interpret the data that is coming your way in different ways. So I think this is the one problem. It's not that uh, Putin is insane or he's a zealot or an ideologist or whatever. He doesn't want to bring the whole world crashing down. It's just that we don't know for sure what he is being told and what this rational, pragmatic man 
may think is a rational, pragmatic move. So I think you wrote that before the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, Defence Minister Ustinov told Brezhnev it last six months. We just roll in and uh, everything's easy after that. Catherine Belton, who wrote Great Book Putin's People, noted this week that other hardliners around the Kremlin have been saying the war won't last a week, it will be over in days. Do you think that's indicative of the kind of advice Putin is getting or is this again just rhetoric for the West, for Western purposes? Well, I mean, I think we should realise that a lot of the kind of assessments we're getting from Russia are not from serious people in the national security community. They are from the kind of toxic TV commentators whose job is really to be more like geopolitical shock jocks. They compete with each other to say the most extreme things on national TV. We really shouldn't assume that in any way they have traction on the political process. And certainly my, my understanding is that, you know, especially within the military, I mean, there are a lot, you know, essentially serious sober professionals who will be coming up with, well, obviously on the one hand, the battle plans, but on the other hand, the damage assessments, the casualty assessments. Exactly. In, in 1979, Dmitry Ustinov, who, although he wore a military uniform, covered, almost literally crusted in medals, was not a military man. In, you know, he chose to sit on all the dangerous reports that were coming from the general staff, saying that actually this is not the war we want to be engaged in. I don't get the sense that the current defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, is the same kind of a figure. I mean, he's, a, he's a, obviously a politician. He understands that there is a a certain etiquette to how you talk to the boss. But I don't think, and certainly the impression I was getting, I mean, I was in Moscow uh, up to about a month ago, and you know, the impression I was getting from people in the military community that I was talking to was that they felt that Shoigu was was sound and, and wasn't just simply a, a political placeman. So, I mean, I, th I, th I think we have to be, we have to be careful. In terms of the sort of the, the one week scenarios, I mean, it's worth mentioning that actually a lot of Western analysts are saying similar things. Because really, it's a question of how you think the war would pan out. If we're just talking about the battlefield, although, in fairness, the Ukrainian military has reformed dramatically well. You know, if only the rest of the Ukrainian uh, state had reformed anything like that, it would be a very different country indeed. They have a quarter of a million men and women under arms. They also have you know, about the, the best experience outside of Russia in how you fight a high-end peer adversary. You know, actually how you fight in a war where there's you know, tanks and mass artillery barrages and so forth. Western militaries have largely been fighting insurgencies and such after all. So they're experienced, they're numerous, they're increasingly well-armed. But still, the Russians have a massive advantage, especially once you factor in the kind of firepower and long, sort of long-range firepower and air power that they can deploy. Just very briefly, what would Russia's goals be in terms of you know taking territory if they were to decide if option you know Z does happen for Putin? What do they do? How does this play out? I'm assuming it would look. It would be I mean, quickly, ideally for Putin. I mean, that, that, that's a hundred billion ruble question, really, quite what would the objective be? I mean, although you know, a lot of the sort of the maps doing the rounds of a putative Russian attack pretty much show them sort of rolling up to the, um, you know, basically the sort of the, the, the river that cuts Ukraine across from between east and west, there's very little evidence or, frankly, common sense reason for the Russians to be interested in taking terrain. I mean, power is no longer about just simply how many square miles of 
agrarian land and coal fields that, that, that you can take. Instead, this would essentially be presumably a punitive attack to more or less impose its will upon Kiev, to force Kiev to capitulate and accept a series of political guarantees, you know, give Russia a series of political guarantees that more or less lock it within its sphere of influence, at which point the Russians could withdraw. And presumably they would hope to be able to do that without actually having to get bogged down in fighting in the major cities in eastern Ukraine. My concern is that that's one of those kind of nice, clean, neat battle plans that probably won't play out well, actually, once it's in the mess of warfare, especially because the Ukrainians have been putting a lot of effort into building up territorial defense, local militias, which are trained and armed to fight for their, their town, their village, and so forth. So I think th this is the thing. I mean, the, the first wave would essentially be a modern blitzkrieg. There would presumably be massive long-range strikes with, with, with missiles and with long-range artillery and with air power. And absolutely, the, the Russians will hesitate to say blow up anything they want to blow up. But nonetheless, you know, they, they will definitely rule the table at that point. Then they will throw in their forces, which again, presumably will be aiming to move fast. But that's the point. That's, that's just simply the combat element. The, the political piece is really what we, we don't know. And if, as seems really quite likely, the Ukrainians refuse to surrender, even after you know, a devastating first wave attack, well, that's the point when it becomes difficult for the Russians. Because how do you ramp up the pressure without getting bogged down into fighting for Dnipro or whatever, street by street? And again, this is one of the other reasons why a lot of people don't think ultimately there will be a war. That the Russians have extraordinary capabilities, but it's quite hard to see how those capabilities turn into actual political gains for them. Talking of political gains, would war be popular in Russia? After Navalny's arrest earlier in this year, there was some talk of the Kremlin ramping up, a Ukraine rally around the flag kind of strategy. But given recent opinion polls, which you've written about, Putin sits at 32%. Would a war restore or, or some kind of conflict restore Putin's popularity to levels that he might prefer? It's hard to see that. There, there doesn't seem to be any enthusiasm in Russia for some grand imperial venture. And although clearly the Russian state media, which is entirely dominated by the Kremlin, directly or indirectly, would obviously sort of pump out the usual rhetoric about uh, Ukrainian neo-fascists were about to commit genocide against Russian speakers, etc., etc. But the Russians, to be blunt, have not just years, but decades and even centuries of being lied to. And they're quite good at, at noticing that. I mean, one of the key reasons, for example, why Russia continues to deny that it has forces in the rebellious Donbass regions of Ukraine is not because they're hoping that someday they'll convince us. It's actually to reassure their own public that their boys don't stand the risk of coming home in a zinc box for this conflict, that even that isn't particularly popular. So I, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, the, the question really is actually how damaging it would be for Putin. And I think particularly, you know, if it led to major economic sanctions, which it undoubtedly would. I mean, the, the Americans, after all, are talking about crippling sanctions. And if it led to essentially casualties, which, again, it certainly would. I think that that actually would, would be highly unpopular. So, again, it's hard to know quite how the hard men in the Kremlin believe it would play out. But they are the, literally, they are the most assiduous pollsters in all of Russia. They have a massive opinion polling outfit. 
And so they must have a sense of this. And so it's not just that I don't think there will be any particular rally around the flag. I think actually it would create additional unpopularity with the regime at a time when it is, frankly, considering how it's going to get a decent share of the vote in the 2024 presidential elections. So just as one last question, what would it take for Putin to be able to climb down from where he is at the moment? Again, as you say, facing more serious sanctions than Russia has ever faced before and what looks like increasing resolve across the Baltic states as well as between NATO states as well. How does, how does Putin get out of this if he needs to? Well, the interesting thing is the Russians are quite good at, well, A, spinning things, but also at, shall we say, asymmetric uh, politics. I mean, at the moment, essentially everything that Putin is demanding, it relates to Ukraine and relates to NATO and NATO enlargement. Now, it will be relatively easy to set up some kind of new process, a little bit like the Corfu process that followed the 2008 war in Georgia, which gives Russia a platform to grumble and raise all its issues and to talk it out with interlocutors from NATO. So it can fee- it can at least present itself as saying that it brought NATO to the negotiating table, even if actually the process leads to absolutely nothing. I don't think that would be enough to, to, to get Putin to climb down, but you know, it is one of the different fig leaves we can offer. There's also room for, for practical measures. I mean, one of the particular issues, for example, with Occupy Crimea is it lacks water because the Ukrainians cut off the Crimean Canal that used to supply it. Now, it would be possible for Kiev to reopen that canal. Kiev could claim this is not a concession to the Russians. This is because we still consider the Crimean people to be Ukrainian citizens. And this is a humanitarian gesture. So Kiev can can show that it's, it's humane. And Moscow can tell its own people they thought they could sort of essentially starve our people of, of water, I, even though it's not quite the right word, I know. Um, and yet we force them to, to reopen the canal. So, I mean, I think the thing is, there has to be something on the table, unfortunately. It doesn't feel good rewarding aggression, but realistically speaking, there has to be something that allows the Russians to, to claim victory. It's really a question of how can we create an off-ramp that seems to have enough to offer the Russians without, in practice, providing them with any great gain. Because the trouble is, if if we make this look like too uh, appealing a strategy, then Russia in the future or other countries, and obviously everyone is thinking about the China reverberations, but now the countries might feel, okay, this is the new world order, that actually the West will buy you off if you become inconvenient enough. It's essentially a kind of a North Korea strategy or an older North Korea strategy, it seems. Um, Which just... depends on demonstrating a degree of sort of desperation, really. Yeah. The other thing that just happened, again, just talking about China, the Kremlin put out a statement yesterday saying that Putin was going to talk to Xi, I think, tomorrow or today or some, sometime in the next 24 hours. Is this the last phone call that Xi wants to take at the moment? Well... It's hard to know because actually both Beijing and Moscow have created this interesting situation whereby, you know, we shouldn't by any means consider them to be allies. I mean, they clearly have divergent interests, but they also have certain common interests. And obviously the common interests basically are about distracting and dividing and demoralizing the West. From Xi's point of view, actually taking that call from Putin 
Yes, he knows that by doing so, he is giving Putin a little bit of extra diplomatic firepower because Putin is doing that precisely because as soon as Russo-China connections sort of, again, hit the news, people pay attention and get, get very scared and start talking about the dragon bear and so forth. But likewise, from Xi's point of view, you know, it may well be that he would like the notion that he becomes the interlocutor to whom the West turns to try and get Putin to climb down. I mean, actually, it has value that when you are the only person that the, the, the lunatic can talk to, Putin's not a lunatic, but that's often how he's seen, then you, know, you, you acquire an additional degree of clout as a result of that. So, look, I mean, I very much doubt that Putin would have announced that unless the Chinese had already been carefully consulted. Mark, sadly, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for talking us all down off our collective edge of panic about this particular situation. And hopefully we will be able to see in the new year with some kind of resolution going forward. Definitely hope so. This week, South Korea and Australia signed a billion dollar weapons contract, making it one of Australia's largest ever military deals with an Asian nation. Dr. Marcus Hellyer and Michael Shoebridge discuss what the defence contract entails and how this new partnership could influence strategic cooperation in the Indo-Pacific. Hello, everybody out there to Aspie's Rusted On podcast listeners. I hope you're having a great Christmas break. I'm Marcus Hellyer. I cover defence economics and capability at Aspie, and I'm here with Michael Shoebridge, our Director of Defence and Strategy, and we're going to talk about howitzers and Korea. And there seems to be a range of views there about what is going on with the visit of President Moon. And some have argued he's here simply to sign a deal about howitzers and others, including Michael, have said, no, it's a a much bigger issue than that, that it's not just a, a trade deal, but there are some big strategic implications here. But first of all, let's talk about howitzers, because I know Michael, you and I have quite different views about the utility of helicopter of howitzers. Sorry, should we be buying these in the first place? No, I don't think we should, Marcus. I, I don't think that tracked howitzers are a sufficient lift in capability for the Australian Army over the traditional towed howitzers they already have to make a difference uh, that that is worth spending a billion dollars. Uh, but I suppose. Whether President Moon needed to turn up to seal this deal, no, he didn't. South Korea had already won this contract a couple of years ago. This was a signing ceremony. It was symbolic, but it told us a lot more about the Australia-South Korea relationship by having President Moon actually come to Australia. So Scott Morrison and President Moon have built a strong leader-to-leader working relationship Over the last, uh, since 2018, they've had four leader meetings and discussions over this time, culminating in this personal visit of President Moon. And that's because it's in South Korea's interests to get closer in defence, technological and economic terms to Australia. And it's in Australia's interest to do the same with South Korea. So the howitzers are just a little indicator of this developing relationship. Mm. I mean, just on the howitzers, I've got a slightly different view. I think they are a useful capability. We might recall the first time we went around this boy on howitzers was about a decade ago and that the 
the deal back then fell through, but a lot of the discussion back then were people were saying, oh, they're big clunky bits of metal, they're no use in modern conflict, no use in counterinsurgencies, they're a relic of the Cold War. But at that exact point in time, there were Dutch self-propelled howitzers operating in Tarankout's supporting Australian troops on the ground doing counterinsurgency. So I, I do think they have an ongoing utility. It's sort of, we got here in an odd way because the deal fell through nearly a decade ago. And then in the last federal election in 2019, the Prime Minister, sort of out of the blue really, announced that we were going to buy South Korean howitzers and build them in in Geelong. And of course, some of the cynics, including myself, said, well, really, this is just a desperate attempt to save uh, Sarah Henderson's job, who was the, the coalition MP. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, we are here now, and the contract has now been signed about two and a half years later. And I do think there are bigger strategic implications here. Yes. So what, what is it that's, that South Korea wants out of this other than a billion dollar deal? Well, so South Korea is looking at the region and it's it's not using the Indo-Pacific language that we and other partners do and that might be you know, part of a, a bit of a vestige of the difficult South Korea-Japan relationship because Japan is the daddy of the Indo-Pacific concept. But when South Korea is, is looking at us and looking at the world, they're thinking uh, COVID, supply chains and China. And COVID and supply chains are deeply linked ideas in South Korean thinking, just as they are in ours. It's that you have to have a reliable partner for all the inputs that your economy and your military needs. They look at Australia as a reliable supplier of a whole lot of inputs that power their high-technology economy, critical minerals, things for batteries. All of those things we know are disrupted supply chains and also that have a China angle because China is a controller of a whole lot of these inputs. Reducing vulnerability to Chinese control of these inputs makes sense for both Australia and South Korea. Yeah, I mean, South Korea has already experienced... Chinese economic coercion. In fact, they were on the receiving end of that before Australia was. So you may recall, of course, when the US was considering basing THAAD missile defence systems in South Korea, China really arced up over that and put a lot of sanctions on South Korea. So they've experienced it firsthand as well. Yes, so we've got a common experience of things, but the thing I like about the Howitzer deal while not liking the howitzers, is it actually connects our two defence organisations and defence industries in a very practical way. So it can open the door to wider, deeper technological cooperation with South Korea. And South Korea, when you think of technology, you will have a bunch of South Korean brands that come into your mind. LG, Samsung, Hyundai. Uh, you know, these, these are innovative global companies in the at the center of competition in high technology areas they're intrinsically important to australia's economic technological and defense future do you see this potentially as the start of something bigger in terms of south korea in general and hanwar in particular offshoring some of its 
industrial production to Australia in in a sense using Australia as a source of strategic depth so if conflict breaks out on the peninsula they can rely on sources of production here in Australia? Well that's actually the South Korean government's broader economic and regional policy to to look south to build these tighter supply chains with trusted partners and that applies economically it certainly applies militarily and it's not a coincidence that when South Korea looks at Australia, they see a country that's still a contributing member to the UN formation that's still there because, remember, the Korean War isn't over. It's just a truce. So we're, we're already a trusted military partner because of that long history and we have a whole lot of inputs that they need. So, yes, for them, it's, it's a deep part of their economic and strategic security to, to build this these closer set of supply chains with us. And in defence terms, it can be wholly to Australia's benefit because the kind of things the South Koreans are doing with their force structure and their capability investment are not able to be explained by only being worried about Kim Jong-un coming across the border. They're all the kinds of capabilities Australia needs as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting some of the things the South Koreans are doing, such as light aircraft carriers with F-35B on. That's sort of uh, something we've talked about a lot here in Australia, but while we've talked about it and not done it, the South Koreans have simply gone ahead and done it. Well, I think that's that's a reason that their howitzers were selected by by Australia. They actually deliver on their capability ideas. So they're building their own submarines now. Uh, they've got plans to build nuclear submarines. They will probably develop a local indigenous South Korean small nuclear reactor that powers a South Korean nuclear submarine. Yeah, they, they deliver uh, on what they intend to do, and that kind of partner we can work with and learn from. I think it would be interesting to run a, a bit of a, a pool to see who succeeds in uh, getting a nuclear submarine into service faster, us or the South Koreans. And yeah, smart so money I, might be on the South Koreans. I, I'm not proposing we turn the nuclear pro submarine program into, into a joint program with the South Koreans. I'm just saying when you look at the rest of Australia's capability needs, you know, missile systems, uh, autonomous vehicles, space systems novel systems across the three services, capable surface vessels that are armed, unlike our offshore patrol vessels. The South Koreans are doers and deliverers and taking, taking advantage of the partnership we've opened up with this howitzer deal uh, is something that's strategically important mm. to us. Yeah, I think South Korea, are, you know, it's a, it's a quiet achiever in, in many ways. It's interesting, you look at the numbers and even though South Korea's GDP is significantly smaller than Japan's, Japan's the third in the world and South Korea is is 10th in the world, you know, if you went back, you know, 10 years, 20 years, I mean, there would be no comparison between them. So uh, South Korea's actually overhauled Australia in terms of GDP and is steadily moving up the rankings. But in terms of military power, um, South Korea's defence budget is almost the same as Japan's. You know, just, you know, mm -hmm. So they are very serious in, in the defence uh, space and also in defence industry. Yeah, and the fact that they're focusing their force structure and capability thinking beyond the Korean peninsula now 
makes them a more valuable partner in future years. So I'd say the last thing, I'd, I'd love to see South Korea at next year's Sydney Dialogue because one of the uni- unique strengths that South Korea has is its government partnership with its technology firms. That's part of their secret of the success, the mir- miracle of the of the Han River, who creating such a contrast between South Korea and North Korea as far as vibrancy and success. And that partnership between South Korean government and South Korean technology firms is actually what the Sydney Dialogue is all about. It's about connecting the world's powerful democracies with their technology sectors in a constructive way. Mm. Again, that's something the South Koreans do really well and we can benefit from. Yeah, And I, I guess to me this is, just as a final point, another sort of indication of the shift of strategic weight to the Indo-Pacific, you know, in a sense of, you know, traditionally Australia has bought either US or European, you know, and now, you know, South Korea is, is a, you know, valid competitor in that kind of market. And so, again, I think it shows another way in which the strategic weight, you know, whether it's economic weight, technological innovation, is shifting, you know, to the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, so we're going to hear a lot more about India and Japan through the Quad relationship, uh, but we also need to uh, remind ourselves that South Korea is a key regional partner. Anyway, great to talk to you, Marcus. Thank you, Michael. That's a wrap on this episode. This week you heard conversations with Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Professor Mark Gagliotti, Honorary Professor at University College London, author of We Need to Talk About Putin, and host of the podcast In Moscow's Shadows. Michael Shoebridge, Director of ASPE's Defence Strategy and National Security Programme, and Dr Marcus Hellier, Senior ASPE Analyst. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.